the top questions for Georgia politics in 2023. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. Where have you been? But be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And be sure to rate us while you're there because it really helps us grow the show. Well, Patricia, earlier this week, we had the chance to talk about the top questions of 2022. Actually got to answer those questions now that we have the benefit of hindsight of living through it all. And we also got to talk a little bit about the things that caught us off guard, you know, the big questions that weren't really big questions. Well, we get to do the same now for 2023. We get to go look at what we think will be the biggest questions of the year. And then of course, in a year from now, we'll go back and tell each other how dumb we were. <laughs> yeah, really like, well, <laughs> we that was a dumb question. <laughs> yeah, you're a break. But I love doing this because it, it really lets us put our analyst hat on even more firmly. And we can give a little bit of prediction too about what we think might be coming. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. And I wouldn't call this just baseless speculation. I would say this is informed speculation, which is also known as analysis in the exactly. business. <laughs> so, we have so we have some questions to answer. Ready go. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Okay, Patricia, this might be my biggest question of the year, and we might have a resolution fairly soon, and that is, will Georgia be the home of the trial of the century? And I only say that with a little bit of exaggeration, because if the district attorney, Fulton County, Fonnie Willis, decides to go forward with charges against Donald Trump, it will be an enormous trial, tons of media attention. We've already seen even subpoenas, even closed-door testimony to the special grand jury charged with recommending whether or not the DA should go forward with charges is getting national headlines. Um, Fonnie Willis has a pretty strong record so far of getting the people she wants to testify to testify behind closed doors. The Fulton County grand jurors have heard all sorts of different things from different key players, ranging from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Governor Brian Kemp, to national figures linked up with Donald Trump. Um, as of this taping, we still don't know if Donald Trump will be subpoenaed. We don't know if they need him to be subpoenaed because that's what the criminal investigation could deliver if that goes forward. My hunch is it will. This is not based on any sort of inside knowledge at all. I just I just think that this will end up going forward and this we will, we will be the home in Atlanta of this major trial that will not just focus solely on that famous call between 
Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger in early January, where he urged the Secretary of State to find enough votes to overturn the election, but broader than that, into the fake electors uh, orchestrated by GOP Chair David Schaefer, into Rudy Giuliani's testimony before state lawmakers uh, full of lies and conspiracy theories about election fraud, up into the efforts to get Governor Kemp, to get Attorney General Chris Carr, to get state lawmakers on board with efforts to undermine confidence in Georgia's election. So I think that's where we're headed, but I think that is going to be one of the biggest questions of the year uh, because it will shape the state's politics and really the shape writ large if it does go forward. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I agree with you. It really feels like we have come very, very far down this road with the special grand jury not to see an indictment. Now, of course, that's the whole purpose of a special grand jury is to decide whether or not to recommend an indictment. Um, but based on everything we've learned also from the January 6th committee, which was not publicly known as the special grand jury was getting started, what we know from our own reporting and um, what we've seen from uh, some other investigations going forward and even criminal and civil cases either being dismissed based on total lack of evidence or moving forward because it looks like there is some evidence. It does feel like this is headed toward a possible indictment of Donald Trump. Now, if that happened, to your point, that wouldn't just be a Georgia story. That would totally upend national politics because it's just never happened before. And in all of the legal exposures that Donald Trump has, legal experts have said the Fulton County situation feels like one of the most serious, if not the most serious. Uh, That's probably based because it's what we know the most about publicly. We know all about that phone call from Donald Trump to Brad Raffensperger. And that really started the whole process off. And Fannie Willis did an interview with the AJC when she said, you know, I heard that call and I immediately looked to see where Brad Raffensperger lives because I really prayed he did not live in Fulton County. Because if he did live in Fulton County, I was going to need to start working on that call. And sure enough, he lives in North Fulton. I've been to his house before. So, um, This is just an incredibly serious situation. It's been very high profile, even though all of the testimony has been secret. And almost all of it, I think, has been extremely closely guarded. I think that is a testament to how seriously the DA's office takes this situation. And I think Fannie Willis knows. I mean, listen, she is an elected DA, as are they all. She knows that she can't miss on this. Um, She can't bring an indictment if it's not warranted and likely to get a conviction. But I think she also knows by moving to a special grand jury, she knew the kind of circus that was going to create outside the Fulton County Courthouse, knew it would have intense, intense exposure, uh, but decided to do it anyway. And so based on her kind of risk aversion in situations like these, it does seem like it's something that she felt I'm pretty confident would end up potentially ending in an indictment. You know, one question I still have about this entire process is what happens with Burt Jones. His entire case was carved off to the side uh, from this process because of a conflict or potential conflict that Judge McBurney in the case said was presented by Fannie Willis holding a fundraiser for Burt Jones' opponent. Now, of course, that race has come and gone. Burt Jones will be the lieutenant governor of Georgia, but there's still this unresolved question of what happens with his legal situation, primarily because he was one of the 11 fake electors who did sit and then sign their name uh, to that fake elector document that um, then ended up being the people who said that they were electors for Donald Trump and they weren't because Donald Trump was not elected here. 
Yeah, my gut tells me, and this is just gut still, is that it's David Schaefer, who is the orchestrator of all that, who, who um, you know, documents that we've obtained, that we've reported on, that other outlets have reported on, already show that, uh, you know, he played a more direct role in, in that fake elector scheme than some of the, you know, some of the rank and file members who, some of them have already said they regret it. They didn't know that this would become what it is. It is what it is. They, they still served as fake electors. But David Schaefer played an instrumental role in all that. So I think the spotlight will be a little sharper on him, the, the prosecutorial lens. But we'll, we'll see. It's the beauty of these questions. We don't know a lot of the answers yet, but we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> we don't know. And that one we could find out sooner than later. That yes. one might, will not be probably a November of next year answer like some of the ones that we talked about earlier this week. Okay, our second question, and this is the one we won't probably find the answer to that soon, is what's in store for the future of Governor Brian Kemp and Senator Raphael Warnock? As we've talked about, Patricia, both of them in 2022 with soaring national profiles, legitimately in the conversation as national figures in the 2024 mix, maybe not as candidates, I doubt personally as candidates themselves, but at least they'll be discussed as potential candidates by national media and by national Republican and Democratic figures, particularly if Joe Biden decides not to run for re-election. But more importantly, I think to here in Georgia is that they'll be able to use, wield their influence to help shape the national discourse, political discourse, and the 2024 race as well. Though they can play king or queen makers in Georgia. That also means that every step they take will be magnified. Every misstep they take will be magnified. There'll be a lot more scrutiny on Governor Kemp's state of the state address, his inauguration. There'll be a lot more scrutiny on Senator Warnock's legislative proposals, his speeches on the floor, because they're now in a sort of different political stratosphere. Yeah, and a lot of this is going to probably be out of their control. So many, so many times people's political futures are based on other people's political futures that either do or do not end up happening. So um, will Joe Biden run for president again? We don't know 100%. Seems like he will, but we don't really know what happens between Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. There was a time where we all thought Tim Pawlenty was going to be the president of the United Mm -hmm. States. So, you know, early views on presidential races almost never end up being what you see in the rearview mirror once it's all said and done. But what we can say about both of these gentlemen is that they have really cemented their place in the top tier of leaders in their party for the next year and going forward. They will be able to raise immense amounts of money for other people. Um, They will be able to be really highly sought after surrogates for other people. And then there may be a circumstance, there may be, you know, sort of a a series of events that end up leading them to be the actual leader who people are seeking as well. So we we don't know what's going to happen. But we do know that these guys have both opened a lot more doors for themselves, not just by winning, but by winning in the way that they did. And now a little bit of prediction time. I think that Governor Kemp will be talked about as a potential running mate for a non-Trump candidate, they legitimately talked about, vetted all that. I don't know if he'll get that slot, but I think that there'll be talk if Mike Pence is the nominee, if Chris Christie's the nominee, that word will leak out that Governor Kemp is being vetted. Um, I also agree with you. I think Joe Biden's very likely to run again. So for Senator Warnock, it's more of you know just his role in the South's premier battleground state and how he could help 
Joe Biden, because that's a that's a unique situation too. As we've talked about so many times, he did not run by embracing Joe Biden. And frankly, when we asked him if he even wanted Joe Biden to run for re-election, he said that was a flawed question. That's pundit talk. Who's up? Who's down? Who's in? Who's out? Who cares? Was his answer to that question. So it'll be really interesting to see how Senator Warnock navigates all that because he is such a powerful voice for Democrats. And both these guys, both Kemp and Warnock, have shown this election cycle that they command this very crucial block of swing voters who both back both Kemp and Warnock. And I think that group of swing voters is going to play such an important role in Georgia politics going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you get with both of these gentlemen as a surrogate is you don't lose voters in the process. They both are going to appeal to the bases of their national parties in a very strong way. But they also have this little plus plus associated with their candidacies because they did manage to get crossover voters the last time around. And that also means that they just functionally know how to go after those votes, know how to appeal to those voters. And so that's sort of a skill set and a success sort of a uh, um, kind of a proof point that you don't get with a whole lot of other leaders at the national level. If they're statewide leaders, they tend to be more kind of more Democratic, more Republican. These guys are both going to have some crossover appeal for anybody that they're talking to. I think Kemp also makes a lot of sense for somebody like Nikki Haley, and she campaigned for him a lot. And I saw her at the varsity more time I wouldn't have <laughs> more times than I've seen myself there lately. Um, so she spent a ton of time in Georgia, and um, it's not just because it's next door. I think it's because she's definitely going to be running for president as well, and um, not only trying to build coalitions, but I think she's all of these potential presidential candidates are doing sort of a, a mini casting call when they're out campaigning with other leaders as well. So you could envision a situation where we, you know we hear more about uh, Brian Kemp in the future than we thought we would on the national scene. Certainly than we thought we were four years ago. For sure. That's how times change. There's there's one constant in politics is there's no constant in politics. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with three more of the major questions we're watching for 2023. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And not only are we lucky enough to be the host of Politically Georgia, we're also lucky enough to be the authors, two of the authors, of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now 
by going to subscribe at AJC.com slash podcast in your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe at AJC.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, our next big question for 2023 is will Georgia's new legislative leaders find their footing? And this is a, such an important question because you have Governor Kemp with a, now a mandate. He came into the 2018 winning by a razor edge margin. Now he has a more than uh, seven point victory uh, to his credit. And look, he was able to pretty much get everything he wanted to get done his first four years. He fulfilled most of his campaign promises, the major ones, even with not the best relationship with lawmakers through some of his first term. We talked about how he sort of restored his relations with lawmakers in his fourth year as David Ralston, as other legislative leaders pulled behind him. They saw him as an effective leader, and they also didn't want David Perdue to be the Republican nominee. But now, because of tragedy and because of election changes, we have a different cast of characters running the show at the state capitol. With the death of Speaker David Ralston, that has ushered in a new era with John Burns, one of his key deputies, as the new speaker. And from all accounts, we, we don't expect John Burns to take a dramatically different course than David Ralston. He's also a lawmaker who is less intent on cultural wars, cultural divides, and more intent on focusing on consensus-driven policies, but also, of course, very conservative. That being said, we also don't know how he's going to lead this caucus. And, you know, even if he comes in with that sort of mindset, with that philosophy, with that approach, a lot of things happen. And there'll be challenges to his leadership. I'm not saying formal challenges, but there'll be groups of lawmakers who were newly elected who might have different thoughts about how to run the show. There will be longstanding veterans of the state capitol who have different thoughts about how to run the show. And we'll see how he navigates that prickly territory. And also on the other side of the Capitol, we have a brand new Lieutenant Governor, Burt Jones, who I like to think of as sort of the bad boy of the Georgia Senate. He was not part of the political establishment in the Georgia Senate. That was Butch Miller, who he defeated in a Republican primary. In fact, Burt Jones was demoted from a chairmanship by Jeff Duncan, the the outgoing Lieutenant Governor. So Burt Jones was sort of on the outside for much of his last couple of years in the Georgia Senate. Now he's in charge. And we're going to soon find out how his leadership style, his priorities, um, how he navigates a pretty fractious caucus. And at the same time, we have a lot of rank and file Republican new leadership in those positions like majority caucus chair, like Senate majority leader, like these House Republican leadership positions. And we have some new Democratic leaders as well, who will be trying to keep their coalition together, press their priorities, and when it comes to it, be obstacles to GOP bills that they oppose. Um, So it's going to be really, really fascinating and really important how these new legislative leaders find their footing. Yes, I think that the biggest question going forward, and it's one that we knew the answer to last year, but we don't know the answer this year, who is going to have the real power in the state capitol? Who can move a bill? Who can kill a bill? 
who can ensure its passage. I also feel like Governor Brian Kemp is going to have an upper hand this year because he's the longest serving leader of that, you know, three-legged stool that we always talk about. He's coming off of a really successful election win. So he may be able to assert himself even more than he has in past legislative sessions when he has butted heads with lawmakers in the past before. Once you come off a big win like that, you just you sort of accrue power in the process. Um, For incoming House Speaker John Burns, because he was so close to David Ralston, he is certainly seen in the mold of Ralston, but he's not the same person. And he's going to have to really establish himself very quickly. What are his bounds? How far can people push him without getting um, kind of their legs taken out from underneath him? And that is sort of a, that's sort of a raw description of power politics in the Capitol. But um, who's in charge in the House? That's going to be the ultimate question. And how much power does John Burns have? Um, another question I'll be looking for Jan Jones, who currently is the House Speaker. She's the first female House Speaker in the history of Georgia. She'll again be the number two, um, the Speaker pro tem. Will she, because she has been in that role for so long, play a bit of a larger role in the chamber also to support mm-hmm. John Burns? We know that Burns got there through a coalition. There were several people talking about running for Speaker, most of them dropped back and decided to support and throw their support behind John Burns. So he comes in with all of those allies standing behind him. What role are they going to play? What role are they going to get to play going forward? Matt Hatchett, for one, is going to be head of House Appropriations, which we've heard, we've learned now. So John Burns will have his allies throughout the throughout the state house. And how does he really just maneuver them? How does he operate as a speaker? It'll be so fascinating to see that. Um, also, in the state Senate, as you said, we're going to have the exact same question for Burt Jones. <laughs> the idea, thinking of him as the bad boy of the state capitol, like I envision <laughs> this motorcycle and <laughs> him smoking. You know, he's really quite clean cut. I don't, <laughs> I just can't buy it. Push but he was like, yeah, totally. He's like, you know, just sleeping in the back of the classroom. Um, he he was 100% ostracized last time around by uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan as just a, a complete power play, stripped him of his committee assignments. And a few of his colleagues, by the way, stripped all of them of their committee assignments because of their the role they played with Donald Trump in the 2020 elections. Um, one of the first things Burt Jones has done is to restore those members let them know that they're going to have committee assignments going forward. It's interesting, really interesting, I think, that Burt Jones' incoming chief of staff is Lorianne Paradise, incredibly mm-hmm. well-respected in the state capitol, coincidentally, the wife of Scott Paradise, who was Herschel Walker's campaign manager. But uh, she is somebody who I think is seen as an extremely steady hand and a real professional, just a real pro. So the fact that Jones has brought her on board to be the chief of staff, I think is a signal to other people, okay, this is going to be a highly professional office. This is going to be a real operation and really looking to assert itself very, very early on in the legislative session. The state Senate last year was sort of like to me, like a bunch of cats in separate pillowcases, <laughs> like they were all having these <laughs> internecine fights amongst themselves. And there was the the lieutenant governor, um, the leader pro tem, the head of the GOP caucus. They all seem to have their own separate power centers. Are we going to see that going forward? Because John Kennedy, who is the leader pro tem, 
is a little bit of a different flavor than Burt Jones, a little bit more moderate, uh, extremely even handed. Um, I'll just be fascinated to see exactly like the House, who's calling the shots in the state Senate, Mm -hmm. who ultimately has the upper hand. And that'll, you know, notice we've been talking solely about Republicans. This still is a really Republican-run state capital. Um, but Democrats have have continued to narrowly close the gap every year. And so Democrats picked up three seats in the state House, one seat in the state Senate. Um, we're also going to see, I, I love this, we're going to see some sort of flip-flopping that people moving offices across the Capitol. Yeah. Um, state Senator Michelle Au is going over to the state House because she was pretty much redrawn out of drawn out of her state senate district, and she was like, "Not so fast. I'm just going to run for state house." So she'll be in the state house, and then Ed Setzler and Josh McLaurin will be moving from the state house over to the state senate. If there are any I've missed, I'm sure someone will tell me. But the Capitol to me is such a cool beat to cover. There's so much going on all the time. It all happens so fast, and then you know those bills are laws by July. It's crazy to me that that is really how it works. And it really is how it works. I'm excited about the session starting. And we talked a lot about the people and the personalities, but the issues are going to be the other big question. We know that before he died in one of his last public appearances, Speaker David Ralston said that he wanted this session to be about opportunity, not about divisive culture war issues, but about infrastructure, workforce development, education, you know, things that that he hoped that both parties could get behind. We also know that we've heard that before, before sessions that ended up getting devolving into a lot of divisive cultural war issues. And even though sessions, plenty of other things get done, you know, and most of the other things that get done end up being consensus driven. But, you know, those sessions are tend to be dominated by fights over guns or abortion or religious liberty or what have you. Going into this session, we don't, at least my prediction is, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that folks are kind of retreating. They're they're going to their own corners. There there's going to be spirited debates about certain key issues. But I think, you know, I think most of the big debates will be about legislation that both parties kind of get behind. We'll see. We'll see. That might that might be like wishful thinking, in a sense, because we always know there's big surprise issues. But the big thing going into the session that we don't know is really the scope of Governor Kemp's second term agenda. He didn't have to make many promises um, because he was ahead in every single poll over Stacey Abrams after the primary. So he's going in there with confidence. And the other big thing we don't know is what battles we'll, we'll see over electoral changes. Yes. Moving the state's primary up to February, the presidential primary up earlier in February, changes to the runoff system, changes to early voting. All these things will be proposed. All these things will get all sorts of national attention. And we don't know where leaders stand on many of those issues. You know, it's so interesting. Um, I'm skeptical that nothing's going to happen. You know, like some big thing mm-hmm. is not going to blow up that we didn't anticipate. Um, part of that is because in both of Brian Kim's off years as governor so far, there was always one huge issue that ended up being incredibly divisive and emotional. In 2019, it was abortion. In 2021, it was election reform. But I think going into those sessions, we kind of knew that 
that was going to happen. We at least had a sense that those bills were coming forward. And so we don't know what it might be this year. But we have a lot of new members. We have a House Freedom Caucus and a Senate Freedom Caucus that are secret. So we don't know who is in them or who know some of the members, runs them. Yes, we know some yeah. of them. But generally, it's they say that it's a secret list. So they don't. you don't have to say if you're a member of the House or we Senate. We have 600 Freedom members. Caucus. It's secret, though. <laughs> yeah, we have 600 members and only 150. <laughs> Six uh, people in the general. <laughs> it's actually more than that. Um, but uh, so I don't know. It just seems like they're, it's, you know, it's just that, you know, idle hands are the devil's playground. I do not imagine that nothing hugely controversial is going to happen. But we do know that the 236 state lawmakers are going to do their best to keep us on our toes. And that dovetails to the next question we kind of previewed here, but just how will Georgia start to shape the 2024 field? And it starts with Joe Biden's push to make Georgia one of the early voting states that, of course, can't be done unilaterally. You have to have Republicans sign off. And at this, the moment of this taping, we're not exactly sure where Governor Kemp stands on it, where other state Republican leaders stand on it. My personal prediction is that they'll be on board with it because it stands to help Republican leaders in the state probably in a sense more than Democratic leaders because you're looking at a possibility of Joe Biden running for re-election and not a real, you know, big, epic, drawn-out battle for the Democratic nomination in states like Georgia, but a wide-open Republican nomination where Brian Kemp could well play this huge role in helping whatever candidate he picks win the state of Georgia. And not just Brian Kemp, other Republican leaders would be courted um, here in Georgia. Their endorsements would be sought after by the various candidates for higher office. And in Georgia particularly, this could be bad news for Donald Trump because Georgia's the state where Donald Trump's approval ratings have been lower than many other battleground states, and he's played a diminished role here as well. But it doesn't just end at that. The DNC could well pick Georgia as is home for that quadrennial conference, that giant meeting uh, in 2024. Atlanta is believed to be one of the top finalists along with Chicago. So we could hear very soon about that. And of course, you know, the, the fact that Kemp and Warnock are playing this outsized role in the national discussion and the fact that Georgia is this cemented itself as this important swing state will mean that presidential candidates will have to start visiting Georgia fairly soon to start lining up, getting their ducks in a row in such an important state. It has never or it has for a long time not made sense for Democrats to have Iowa and New Hampshire at the very front of their primary process because those states are so, so very homogeneous, extremely white. And that's just not the Democratic electorate. So it doesn't really makes sense for those two states to have such an outsized role in picking who the field is going to be, who even has a chance. And Georgia is, if you think about it, really the perfect state. It has very diverse population, a really good mix of urban and rural, and is a really true battleground state. So this is a, a state where I think it feels a lot like Iowa to me now in a way because we have really highly informed voters, people who follow these elections very, very closely, really excellent, strong turnout. But it is uh, just has the benefit of looking a whole lot more like the Democratic electorate that these presidential candidates need to be appealing to, even more than South Carolina, which is just such a Republican state still. Georgia, as a as a battleground state, is um, inc- obviously increasingly important to both parties. And for Republicans, 
it has, I think, really the added bonus of being essentially a Trump-free zone. You know, you have a lot of Trump voters here, but it is not heavily influenced by Donald Trump anymore. So that would really Mm -hmm. give you a much better sense of who could really play and really win nationwide, depending on how they do here statewide. But as you said, it's really going to take Governor Brian Kemp being in a good mood and feeling like helping the Democrats out (laughs) for uh, he's not going to do it for no particular reason. But if he can find a good reason to do it and something that will strengthen him, strengthen Georgia in the process, you know, you could see him coming off of his earlier skepticism of helping out with that. Yeah, I just I just think it helps Republicans more than Democrats in this election cycle. Who knows about future ones? But Biden runs again, then it's kind of be more of a snoozy uh, Democratic primary, but a wide open Republican one where Georgia further up in the calendar could be a big deal. We've already heard Republican leaders kind of walk off some of their skepticism. Uh, Brad Raffensberger, in particular, he doesn't play, you know, it's going to be lawmakers and the governor who play the decisive role in all this. But of course, his opinion matters a great deal on this because he's the state's top elections official. And he went from kind of being sour on it to saying, you know what, if both parties agree on it, there's a pathway to doing it. So I think that gets done, but we'll, we'll see. This, this is the fun part about this podcast because we get to make our own predictions, grounded in fact, but of course it is, it is a prediction. <laughs> uh, and, and that also leads us to our last question, which dovetails into all of the issues that we've talked about, which is a big question for Democrats. Not only what's next for Stacey Abrams, but what's next for her vision? What's next for her approach to expanding the Democratic base by appealing to liberal issues. Um, We know that in 2018, it helped get Democrats to a competitive nature in Georgia, but did not get her across the finish line. In 2020, when she was not on the ballot, her approach was largely the same approach that John Ossoff, that Raphael Warnock used by emphasizing their own liberal support for liberal policies and Joe Biden, and not really focusing on their opponents as much. Uh, But in 2022, her strategy did not work. You know, she lost by almost eight points to a Republican incumbent like Governor Kemp. And Senator Warnock took a very different tack. He, of course, energized the base. He had to. But he also reached out to those middle-of-the-road voters, those 200,000 or so voters who ended up backing Kemp, but not Herschel Walker. And they played that huge, consequential, decisive role in this election. So I interviewed more than a dozen leading Democratic figures asked them that question. Will Stacey Abrams approach? Will her vision continue? And most of them said, yeah, we can do both. We can, we can energize the base and we can also go after the middle. But we know they can say that, but it takes a lot of resources to do this, to energize, the, you know, to, to mobilize, to knock on doors for irregular midterm voters, but at the same time try to persuade the middle of the road voters. It also takes some luck. It also takes a candidate who uh, who's very good at message discipline, but also an opponent who can be exploited, like Herschel Walker, who many in the middle uh, were uncomfortable with. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what's next for Abrams in particular, but also how her vision will continue to play out in Georgia. But I do know that right now it's Senator Warnock who is if not the unquestioned leader of the Democratic Party of Georgia, at least one of the leaders, along with John Ossoff, of the Democratic Party of Georgia. And, you know, his vision and his strategy was very, very different from Stacey Abrams from the get-go. 
Yeah, I was so interested in reaching out to Democrats after the Abrams loss. You heard a lot of behind the scenes frustration, but not a lot of out in the open frustration. Um, people are still, I mean, Stacey Abrams is still so incredibly powerful among Democrats here in the state. And I think they also feel like they really do owe her quite a debt of gratitude for how far Democrats have come in this state. They did not want to say anything on the record that was remotely critical of her, even though they really did question the underlying premise that you only have to go after your base voters. And so to your point, I think most Democrats understand that right now for Georgia, this is a base plus state. You're going to need a strategy that 100% mobilizes your base and appeals to your base, but also does a little bit more than that. It is not the case right now that demographics are destiny for Georgia because Republicans have made some pretty important inroads in the last election cycle among Latino voters, among AAPI voters. They've really started to go after minority populations in a way in suburban Atlanta in a way that they had not before. And so I think that Democrats cannot simply wait for the demographics of the state to change and then just sort of flip to a majority Democrat, they're going to have to really be very sophisticated in the way that they mobilize sort of both kinds of voters at the same time. A really important piece of that that's also not often discussed is you just have to have a state leader who believes that and feels that and that is sort of ingrained into their nature. You know, you can't fake it. You can't say, oh, but I'd like anybody to vote for me. You know, there has to be sort of an underlying package that really does want to go after those independent and moderate voters and even a few Republicans, you know, so um, who steps forward for the Democrats at this point? I think you're exactly right. Warnock is 100 percent or 99 percent sort of the face of the party going forward. But that's not going to be enough. You know, Democrats have really got to figure out what to do next, because they just came off a a bunch of huge losses, like big, big losses of their very brightest stars. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board, figure out who are their leaders and uh, what's what's next for this party. Um, At the same time, Republicans, although I think the Kemp victory just powered that entire statewide ballot, there still is this underlying, you know, sort of uh, friction in the GOP party as well here in the state. You sort of have the state party off on its own. You have Governor Brian Kemp steaming forward on his own. So to say that either party in the state really knows exactly what the future looks like for themselves uh, would not be accurate. Patricia, so well said, and we will have no shortage of things to talk about in 2023 as we get ready for another legislative session, a new era in Georgia politics, and of course, 2024, the White House race is right around the corner. Before we sign off for our last show of the year, we owe you, our listeners, a special debt of gratitude for listening, for reviewing, for your questions, for your comments. We love hearing from you out in the real world. There was this one time where I was in downtown Savannah hanging out with a colleague at the Savannah Morning News and someone who was jogging literally stopped in her tracks and said, I was literally just listening to you on Politically Georgia podcast and now I'm seeing you in person. It's, it's been so cool to see so many of our listeners out there in real life and hearing your comments and hearing um, you know, the role that the show plays in your lives. Uh, Patricia, it has been such a joy working with you this year. Shaney B., we appreciate you more than you ever know. And we have so much in store for 2023, and we can't wait to share more of that with you as the year goes on. Um, Craig, 
It's been a joy working with you. <laughs> and also, um, Shane, thank you so much. Jay Black, thank you for really overhauling audio here at um, the AJC. Thank you to Kevin Riley for really supporting all of the AJC's audio efforts. We're going to have lots of uh, kind of podcast plans going forward. I want to thank my agent. I want to thank my family. <laughs> <laughs> this is my Oscar speech. Does it sound good? My makeup artist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know I do my own makeup. Okay, well, I guess we'll sign <laughs> off for the year. Thanks for everything. Shaney B? It's been a great year. Happy New Year to you, Greg and Patricia, and Happy New Year to all of our Politically Georgia listeners. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.